Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Uh, Hopefully you have your Bibles open already to Matthew 6, but that's where we're going to be today is in Matthew chapter 6. Now, some of you might be aware, but there is a trend on social media that I just found out about. So that means it's probably about two years old. And, you know, it's really a story about social media itself. Social media is designed to keep you engaged. So what do they do? They curate content using their fancy algorithms to keep you occupied. So for social media, you, in essence, are the main character. So obvious, obvious is this strategy that people online have made fun of it, right? They have had, they've got this trend going around in which people give silly examples and then they ask, am I the main character? Have you guys seen this? Okay, I'm relevant, all right. So it's funny, right? But it's also ironic because social media has trained our minds to think only of ourselves. True enough, though exaggerated through technology, today it was common in Jesus' day for them to think of themselves first as well. As Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount, he will address the vertical and horizontal relationships that exist with God and with others. And what we find is that this main character energy, which BuzzFeed now quizzes on, existed in the first century as well. It was a problem then. And yet what is true is that we are not the main character in this story. We are not the main character in the story. We're not even a sidekick. We are a part of God's story. The main character in history is God. And because God is the main character in history, then we exist to bring him glory, not ourselves. But even if this is true, even if this is true, that it is God's story, that's difficult for us, right? That is difficult for us. As people who think so often of ourselves, it can be difficult to always think about how we are being perceived. Do I have spinach in my teeth? Do, my, do, I, do they smell my breath right now? Does he like me? Does she like me? Is my hair just right? Why didn't anyone laugh at my joke? I feel this on Sundays really often. Why didn't they ask me about my day after I asked about theirs? Maybe you think this way. See, if we took a hard look in the mirror, if we took a hard look in the mirror, we would realize that we are obsessed with ourselves. We are obsessed with ourselves. It's been said that what we worship is what we are consumed by. If our thoughts, our concerns, our energy, and time is consumed with how we are perceived and received, then my friends, we are worshiping ourselves. This section of Jesus' sermon shows us that following Jesus isn't performative. It's not how we appear. It's more about how we are. Ultimately, our hearts should seek to please God with our whole lives, to live a life that's pleasing to him, in which we can be received into glory with a well done, my good and faithful servant. It's the difference between living for approval of man and living for devotion to God. 
Jesus shows us how we can do that by looking at three spiritual disciplines. And he teaches us that, number one, because God is a provider, we give to the, point, to the needy to point to his trust and his provision. Number two, because God is relational, we pray because it is the way we relate to God. And number three, because God is sustainer, we fast to depend on him to cultivate our hunger for him. So let's read the first part of Matthew 6, the one dealing with giving to the needy in verses 1 through 4. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This section focuses on giving to the needy, but before Jesus begins this whole section, he undergirds all three of these spiritual disciplines with a statement, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. This is what I mean that following Jesus isn't a performance. See, before this, Jesus discussed six object lessons on how unless one's righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then they cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven and how our only hope is in Jesus. But once again, Jesus is talking about righteousness here. This righteousness he's talking about is what we know as piety or things that are perceived to be holy. Yet those holy actions, they can be perverted by those who seek to impress or show off their holiness, their righteousness. And so Jesus, he warns them. He teaches them on how they shouldn't give to the needy versus how they should give to the needy. And so I've got a little chart here, okay? So any of our Excel nerds out there, I've got a table, okay? And what we see in giving to the needy is that the performance is sounding a trumpet in the synagogues, right? In the streets. And being obedient giving to the needy looks like not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This idea of privately giving to the needy. Now, why is it this kind of dichotomy between the two? Well, it all comes down to the purpose of giving to the needy. And that is to point to God's provision. Because God is provider, we give to the needy to point to and trust in his provision. It's without a doubt that scripture points to God as a great provider. Ephesians 1.11, nothing happens outside of the counsel of his will, referring to salvation. Psalm 50.10, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Deuteronomy 2.7, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, God was with them and they lacked nothing. God provided manna and water and he miraculously protected their clothing. God owns everything. And since he owns everything, everything you own is actually on loan. We are managers, we are stewards. Our money, our time, our energy, our passions, our personality are all gifts given by our creator. Now, if you feel a little pushback, just recognize you did not create yourself. We did not create ourselves. All that we have is a gift. So how does this relate to giving to the needy? What is the connection? Well, when we give to the needy and talk or make a show about it or make the person we're giving to recognize our generosity, what are we doing? What are we pointing to in that moment? 
We are pointing to our provision instead of God's. One motivation of giving to the needy and private is that it gives God glory as the provider instead of giving us glory. So in that way, giving to the needy points to God's provision. But also on a more personal level, it allows us to trust in God's provision. Here's a question I want all of you to consider. Consider your bank account, consider your finances, and I know as college students, it might be in the negative. I know mine was in college, okay? But how much giving would be enough to where you had to trust God? Now, immediate challenge that you might have if you'd never considered doing this would be if you are resistant to giving to the point where you would have to trust God, thinking it's foolish or it's unwise, consider this. Could it be that maybe you're idolizing control or security? I wouldn't say that you are necessarily idolizing money, but if you're unwilling to give your money to the point where you have to trust God, are you idolizing control? The reality is it's all God's money. It's all God's time. It's all God's energy anyway. And if you are hoarding money only to protect yourself, then you're withdrawing a blessing from someone else. And not only that, but you are making a value statement that your security and protection is greater to the, than the one in need, that you are more valuable because it's not your money. The reality is that it's all God's money. And if that's so, if we're unwilling to do that, then it is likely we're viewing ourselves as more important or greater than someone else who is also made in the image of God. We trust God when we give to the needy because we are surrendering control. We sing the song, God is in control. But have you surrendered enough control in your own life for that to be true? Jesus ends each section with a reminder, and he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is at the end of each section. And in the New Testament, it is common for the author to remind the reader that obedience will lead to an eternal reward. And though this is a good motivator, I would say that it is never the primary motivator. We don't only give to the needy so that we would receive a reward. We give to the needy because it brings God glory. That is the purpose of this life and the next, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are not the main character. God is. He is the object of our worship. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't take this moment to capitalize on how giving to the needy is a perfect picture of Jesus himself. Just like those in need might have monetary need, all of us have a spiritual one. We are all bankrupt in the righteousness department. And on our own, our works are like dirty rags. They are worthless. But the picture of the gospel is that despite our righteousness account being bankrupt, we were credited Christ's righteousness. And just as we surrender control when we give to the needy, so too do we surrender our lives when we trust in Jesus to save us from our sin. We ultimately were the ones in need. 
And as the great giver, giver, Jesus gave, not money, he provided salvation to needy sinners. Giving to the needy, friends, is a picture of the gospel itself. So let's talk about this at our tables. First, I'd like you to talk about, have you ever suffered from main character syndrome? How could this be anti-Christian? Consider the the saying, history is really his story. Number two, how does giving to the needy point to his provision while simultaneously leading us to trust in his provision? And then I've got a bunch of verses and basically asking the question, have you ever considered that everything you have was given to you by God under the counsel of his will? After reading these verses, what was created by God and under his will? All right, guys, hope you had some good discussion. I hope you landed on the ideas that God is sovereign and he's in control and everything is under the counsel of his will. Then that the main character syndrome is simply impossible for the Christian because it is not about us. It's about God. So as we began... We mentioned the problem associated with misguided worship, right? We said we were obsessed with ourselves. And typically when we worship some aspect of ourselves, you know, we, we, we look at what is the root of that issue. And in Jesus' teaching on giving to the needy, what we discover is that by the danger of idolizing control, right? That's what we learned about. And how surrendering to God by trusting in his provision is actually the way of Jesus. Next, we're gonna read about prayer and fasting. And let's begin with the most famous prayer in the Bible that all of you learned in Sunday school. If you grew up in Sunday school as a kid, this was one of your memory verses, okay? So let's read what Jesus has to say as he teaches the disciples how to pray and what we affectionately know as the Lord's Prayer. In verse five, it begins, and when you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and they love to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So once again, we have the comparison between performative religion and obedient devotion to God. And in regards to prayer, what we see is that performance is standing and praying to be seen by others, keeping these empty phrases like the Gentiles, but the obedient person shuts the door. They pray in secret, being intentional with their words. Jesus teaches on how a true disciple prays. And in this section, Jesus reveals the heart behind prayer. If you've noticed, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus, what is Jesus concerned with? The heart. He's concerned with the heart. Prayer is so important because 
of the Christian's view of God. In every other religion that has a God, he is distant. He is far. He is to be worshipped, but he is not to be known personally and intimately. But for the Christian, God is relational. He is near. You can have a relationship with God. And because God is relational, we pray because it is the way we relate to God. See, a change happened in Acts 2 at Pentecost. 50 days after the resurrection of, God, of, of Christ and 10 days after his ascension into heaven, a fulfillment of Joel 2 came to be. God, for the first time in history, had a dwelling place unlike any other. And by the Holy Spirit, God dwells now in the believer. And going through the Bible and learning about God's dwelling place, if you've never done that, it's a beautiful thing. And in Jesus, we find that the Word, or Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, or the word there is tabernacled, among us. But now God dwells, or tabernacles, which was the first dwelling place of God after the Garden of Eden. It was the tent of meeting where they made sacrifices when the, the Israelites were in the wilderness. This was where you went to meet with God. But now, what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Jesus Christ, God now dwells or lives in you. You are indwelled with God. You don't have to go to a tent to meet with God or take a plane to Israel to go meet Jesus at the temple. You need only be. You need only exist. God is with the Christian. This past week, our team uh, went, was at a conference where David Platt was speaking, and he discussed this idea briefly and mentioned the absurd need for Jesus in unreached places. According to his organization, Radical, there are 3.2 billion, that's with a B, billion people in the world who are unreached. They will be born they will live and they will die without knowing the love of Jesus. Yet 1% of missions giving and 3% of missionaries work among the unreached. J.D. Greer, a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina, a college town like Norman, Oklahoma, encourages every college graduate, every single one, to only apply to regions of the world that are unreached and commit to living there for two years. He tells them they don't have to be a missionary necessarily. Just do the career that you're going to do, but do it where they don't have Jesus. Now combine these two thoughts might be unrelated or sound disconnected, but bear with me. If you, a believer in Jesus, are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, Go to an area that is unreached with no access to the gospel. You will have done something miraculous just by your presence there. Just by stepping foot in that country or city. You will have brought the presence of the living God that lives in you to an unreached people group. Just by your presence, they will be in the presence of God. What was once limited... What was once limited by a temple and limited to geography is now only limited by where we are willing to go. 
That is why we are called to make disciples of all nations. Because in this era of history, we are not bringing people to God, but we are bringing God to the people. That's why we are going to Turkey this spring break. As a college ministry, we are sending a team to Turkey. Turkey is an unreached people group. And I've talked to a variety of students about this trip. And my encourage you, my encouragement to you is the same as to them. What is stopping you? What is stopping you from going? Turkey is an unreached people group in desperate need of Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I don't think it's an accident. Paul said feet. There's an element of going and bringing good news. These people don't have it. And that is why we pray. We need God to do what he has explicitly called us to do. We are not supposed to just do it in our flesh, but do it in dependence on God. We cannot do it by grit or manpower, but only through God's power. So how do we do this? Well, thankfully, Jesus taught us, right? He says, go to your room and pray to our Father who is in secret. And by praying in private, I want, I want to point out some things that happen when we do this. When we pray in private, we become unconcerned with what people think. And we can focus on actually communing with God, relating to God. Because God is a relational God and because we have the Holy Spirit within us, we have access to God 24-7. The Holy Spirit, we can pray through Him at any time. And if we don't know how to pray, we pray as Jesus taught us. And here you might think, oh, this is all about our vertical relationship with God. Prayer is just about how we relate to God and that's all it is. But when you think about prayer only being a vertical relationship, you miss what Jesus says here. There's an element of our horizontal relationships in prayer. Why? Because it's not about us. He says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Christians can be radical reconcilers, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, because we have been reconciled to God. Paul in 2 Corinthians describes the, the gospel as the message of reconciliation, that through that we can be ambassadors for God. We forgive because Christ forgave us. He forgave us all, all of our sins. We can forgive a handful, right? So it comes to the question. Why do we pray in private? Wouldn't praying out loud maybe encourage others to pray or encourage their faith or maybe make them think of spiritual things? But it comes down to this. It comes down to this. Praying for show or praying for attention or approval once again puts the focus on us instead of God. Once again, it puts the focus on us instead of God. Prayer is a divine gift to commune with our God, to confess our sins, to yield our hearts and desires, to trust Him, to praise Him, to make requests. It's not intended to lead people to make, us, make them think that we're holy. It's to point to our relationship with God. 
relationship. Now, finally, we have fasting. Verse 16, it says, When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by, by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I believe fasting is probably the most underutilized spiritual discipline in America today. And I think it's kind of an, an effect of what our culture is like here. Just like prayer, Bible reading, church fellowship, and giving our spiritual discipline, so is fasting. It's a way in which we connect with God. And generally speaking, fasting is whenever you willingly abstain from something, from consuming something, for a set period of time for the purpose of spiritual dependence. I'll say that one more time. Fasting is whenever you willingly abstain from consuming something for a set period of time for the purpose of spiritual dependence. And just like the others, there's a performative way and there is an obedient way. So the performative way is, is to look gloomy, to disfigure your face. Look at how I'm fasting, I'm suffering. But the obedient way is to wash your face, keep it private if you can, because it is not about your appearance, your performance, but it is about your connection to God. And we know that because God is a sustainer, we fast to depend on him and cultivate our hunger for him. Now in the ancient church, as early as the second century, there grew a movement that we know as the monastic movement. These are the monks, okay? And these monks, they renounced the comforts of society and sought the spiritual rewards of self-discipline. And although they were criticized for fleeing the world instead of engaging it with the good news of Jesus, Monks developed communities centered around the ideals of self-denial. Now, at this point in history, when the monastic movement was rising, Christianity had become the national religion of the Roman Empire. So what you have is this simultaneous, this simultaneous decline in Christian commitment, which co coincided with this monastic movement or this serious, extreme devotion God, literally selling their possessions and joining these communities in the wilderness. And it was centered around this idea of self-denial. That's really the heart of fasting is self-denial. There's so many idols in this country that are centered around comfort, being comfortable, whether that's clothing, food, air conditioning, furniture, and easy life. The America we know idolizes comfort. If any of those things you say, I could not live without an abundance of that, right? I could not last a week without air conditioning. I could not last a week without, you know, a good food from McDonald's or whatever, you know, whatever. So much so is this idea of comfort in America that it can be said that putting someone in an uncomfortable situation is actually harmful and hateful. It's obvious that our culture worships comfort. Self-denial might as well be self-harm. Now recognize, I want to make clear, fasting is not starving yourself for weight loss. It is a focused abstinence from something for a set period. And the hunger pangs that we re receive when we're in a fast 
They're alarm clocks to pray, to remind yourself that man does not live on bread alone, but by the very words of the mouth of God. If you find yourself ever going a day and you haven't thought of God, then maybe a fast would be a really good way to remind you of your need and your hunger for God. What's amazing is that with all of these idols, God has given us disciplines to cultivate worship of him instead of ourselves. When we idolize control, giving to the needy worships God as the one who is in control. When we idolize approval, we pray in private, valuing what our heavenly father thinks more than others. When we idolize comfort, we fast so that our hunger pangs come We depend on God to sustain us. Following Jesus isn't performative. In fact, Jesus gave us all these disciplines because he knew that our hearts wander. These disciplines train our deceitful heart to worship the creator instead of created things, or what we know as idols. And because God is provider, we give to the needy to point to and trust in his provision. Because God is relational, We pray because it is the way we relate to God. Because God is a sustainer, we fast to depend on him and to cultivate our hunger for him. All of these reasons is because we are not the main character. These disciplines teach us that. And because God is the main character of history, we exist to bring him glory, not ourselves. So I want to ask you, how can you incorporate these into your life this week. At your tables, I'd like you to talk about that and how you could love the Lord your God with all that you are, or what we call worship. We worship an amazing God. He's worthy. He is worthy of your whole life, friends. Don't just give him the parts you want to. Give him everything. Give him all of you. He can do more through you in a week than we could do on our own for a lifetime. So the question we are left today is this. Are you performing for Jesus or are you following him? Luckily, Jesus teaches us how to follow him. So at your tables, let's talk about these things. Which of these three idols, objects of worship other than God, do you struggle with the most? Okay, Is it control? Is it approval? Or is it comfort? Which spiritual discipline is God leading you to incorporate into your rhythm of life? How can you follow through on this and not just perform for Jesus with an empty answer at your table? Okay, not trying to get harsh there. Just how can you follow through? Lastly, read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It's this idea of as you go, everywhere you go, think about God. Worship him with all that you are. 